this is my ASMR video. Hello and welcome to UX Like Us, the podcast for user experience designers, researchers, strategists, and tools. I'm your user experience tool, <laughs> Roman Burkott. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me as always is Larry King. Larry, how are you? Oh, I'm super duper. In our first episode, we discussed how the UX discipline was shaped by the web. People shared what they were learning, in part because that was the ethic of the early World Wide Web. Nothing is impossible, and everything is free. Now, since we recorded that episode, I've noticed the phenomenon elsewhere. Uh, the sermon slides at church last week, they had this lovely watercolor border that reminded me that watercolor is beautiful specifically because of the nature of the medium. It's hard to control and blends in interesting and, and unexpected ways. Um, wood carvings are beautiful because of the weight and the texture of the wood and the way that it wears over time. So then I started thinking about how does this principle apply to our work? If the tool shapes the art, then what does that say about the state of UX? So I'd love to talk about the watercolor thing because I've only ever taken one, not even art class, I wouldn't call it that. So my wife does this thing where she they go to a place Usually it's like a bar or a winery or something and mm -hmm. they have everybody gets together and there's somebody leading and they provide you with paint brushes and paints and mm -hmm. canvases mm -hmm. and you all paint the same picture. And I went one time, wouldn't you know it, it's watercolors. <laughs> watercolors, just like you said, hard to control, blends in everywhere. So if you like have something specific you want mm -hmm. and you don't know how that you know you don't know that how watercolor is just really just going to spread everywhere um <laughs> in, in the paper that you're using it is really hard to control and so i like hated it because i was like i wanted to do this but it does this and i didn't know how to use the tool at all so um <laughs> never done a wood carving though so well but yeah. uh, you do you do uh, your guitars right and so same thing yes the, and a lot of the artistry there is the materials Exactly. And yeah, I do have lots of tools for that. But um, but so how do tools, you know, fit in with UX? Um, and what I like to do is like every subject, I like to go back to the beginning. Remember when we talked about we were talking about uh, delighter features and we were like going back. It's like everything was a delighter feature in the, in the you know, in the in the beginning. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. So. We have to go way back again, right? With that time, I think we went back to the, the printing press or something. Uh, but we're going to go back even farther with tools. So what were the first tools? Sticks. Sticks. Um, and even more so like rocks and mm -hmm. sharpened rocks. And what were they using those tools for? Hunting. Killing things. <laughs> so the origin of all tools is for killing things. So therefore, all jobs are shaped by the need to kill. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we got to UX today. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Make the logo bigger. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we, humans, we shape our tools. And thereafter, our tools shape us. I'm really interested in how tools that we create change the way we do the things that we create with those tools. 
Um, for example, you know, um, just the, I, I've read this book at one point about um, um, audio recording, right? Mm -hmm. And the history of sound and the history of recording of sound. And all along the ways, the different tools that we created to start to capture sound um, actually shaped the music that came after it. Um, for example, um, when you had like a, a 78 Victrola, um, one side of that disc would only hold like three, three and a half minutes worth of, of music. Right. And that is why pop songs are three and a half minutes long and no longer because the medium itself was actually limiting to that. Like if you were, when you recorded symphonies and things like that, you know, that thing would take like, you know, 10, 15 discs and you would have to turn it over in the middle and, and to, to, to actually get a symphony. And so when, you know, popular music started, popular music songs were three and a half minutes long because that's all that could fit on one side of a Victrola disc. And so that's a really good example of how we created a tool. There was technology limitations at the same time, but that tool actually created the culture of music for a very, very long time and, and is influenced even up until today of popular sure. music. Yeah, I love that example because uh, it also reminds me of similarly how artists still by and large produce albums even though there's not a vinyl album or a CD anywhere in that production chain anymore. Because the art of making an album is still there and people, you know, mm -hmm. people enjoy having more than just one song from, well, I think it's probably changing with the younger generation. Sure, um, sure. I'm definitely the younger generation is not listening to albums, but right. there's enough of us old guys still around <laughs> that still do appreciate, you know, listening to an album from beginning to end because of, you know, the, the story that it tells or the, you know, the, the different moods and the, the, you know, the different emotions you get from going from, you know, through the, through, through an entire piece of music um, rather than just a song. Um, interestingly enough, you know, we had the, you know, we had the Victrola three and a half in um, music, but then when we, when they went to invent the CD, they actually tried to figure out, well, what is the optimum amount of time for a CD? And mm -hmm. it was based upon the average length of a classical music um, uh, composition. And so that's what, uh, how they came to the 90 minutes or whatever, the 93 minutes or whatever that, that a CD can hold of, of you know, audio. So interesting <laughs> that we, you know, we started with the technical limitations of the three and a half minutes of the 78 RPM Victrola. And then we got to the point where it's like, oh, we can actually make decisions about, you know, how long, how much, you know, storage a, a single disc can hold. And now we don't have that. Yeah, I find it fascinating that we're already far enough post CD that you can't remember how long it was. I mean, as a musician yourself, and I know for a fact that at some point, I knew how long a CD could hold. I, 90 minutes, like you said, or 94 or, or 64. I have no idea now. But that was like a core part of, you know, data storage for so long. And now it's just like, uh, it's quaint, you know. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Um, just today, one of our colleagues uh, sent us an um a, a link to the 2018 design tools survey. And I thought it was fascinating to just take a look at that and see, well, number one, just how dominant sketches, uh, but, uh, but it's, it, it, it was interesting to, to, you know, take a look at, at that and see, you know, that all the tools that we had, didn't even have like, you know, even five years ago that are the, the, the popular tools of today, like, you mm -hmm. know, sketch five years ago, um, that was just, becoming a thing i think i can't mm -hmm. even remember when sketch came out but and now um 
you know, it's the number one design tool among designers by like a good, good margin. Um, so it's fascinating to see how that has, you know, sh you know, shaped us because now, you know, before people were using, you know, Photoshop and, um, back in at the time people tended to design pages. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and that, and Photoshop was a really good thing for that because Photoshop was like, Hey, here's how you design a page. Here's a way to design whole things. Um, and as you know, our tools have evolved. We have tools like sketch that can allow us to, you know, design smaller things and smaller components. Um, now, which came, you know, I think that the, the, the need to be able to, to, to make those more atomic things has, you know, sort of, you know, shaped our tools as much as, um, our tools have shaped what we do. Yeah. To, I mean, to some degree, it's even, uh, by design, if you will, like when you set up your design system with your, you know, atomic design, you're specifically trying to make sure that the designs that come out of the use of that tool conform to the system that you're trying to create. And so, uh, you know, I personally, I, I found it very uh, challenging to work with our uh, design system library components uh, because it's, there's all these selections and subselections and, you know, nested selections that have, have to be set to, to, to use that. And, and to me, it's, you know, it's mind boggling. And yet here it is, you know, a great example of like this tool is going to make the resulting product match the code that we have to build it with. Our interaction design tools uh, basically design points in time, but don't design the interactions, the, you know, the tweening, if you will, <laughs> those kind of, <laughs> you know, transitions in between is really just like this afterthought, right? The tools um, themselves really make it an afterthought. It's like design state A and state B, and then, you know, we'll make a little dotted line and figure out how to kind of blend that together, you know, one way or another. But because it's such an afterthought, I feel like it, it remains an afterthought in a lot of design. Um, you know, recently we're, we're starting to see more cool animations and stuff, but it's still exceptional. Right. And I think that's the, it's, it's, all about like you know we're doing an abstraction of what is real right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so design tools are less, you know you know the experiences we have do have states and um if we designed every single state we would just be you know or if we implemented every single state we'd just be you know programmers because that's what programmers do right <laughs> and so um you're right our design tools because of the limitations that they have and um we tend to focus on the things that they support, right? Because mm -hmm. the, they're a tool and the tools make things, certain things easier to do. And so we use the tools to that. And then the tools, since they facilitate that, those certain things that are, it, it excels at the things that it don't, doesn't excel at obviously are missing of it. Right. And so that's why I'm really interested in the future of UX design tools as they start to converge with actual code, because then once right. you converge to actual code, you're actually designing the thing as opposed to a representation and an abstraction of the thing. Mm -hmm. And um, boy, I would love to have tools that did that. Right. I mean, at one point and you know, a long time ago, it seemed like we were really close uh, and I'm talking about Dreamweaver, right? It, it seemed like, <laughs> We were just on the cusp of here's a tool that's going to generate actual production ready code for you know all your front end stuff, 
and then suddenly like the landscape changed really dramatically and you know uh I, I'm speaking in terms of, uh, I, I don't think I'll get in trouble for breaking my NDA at this point, but uh, I, I I was a tester for the uh, Spry component library that they were writing and all those, uh, you know, Spry widgets that you could uh, get inside a Dreamweaver. Um, but yeah, boy, just things really went in a, a whole different direction. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, it seems like seemed like Adobe, Adobe was on the right track with that, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. if they could only just, you know, make this more production-ready code and make it, you know, um, you know, more maintainable in the end. But I think they just got the model wrong, right? The model was the, similar to the model of Photoshop. You were coding a page, right? right? <laughs> just like in Photoshop, you're designing a page in mm -hmm. Dream Movie, you're coding a page, but we don't code pages, right? We code small, you know, today, now, yeah, we yeah. move towards, like, coding small, reusable chunks of, of UI that we don't, that we can use over and over again, and we don't have to redefine, you know, and reinvent the wheel every time we implement. And it sounds like maybe those widgets things, I don't know, I never used the, the widgets things with Dream Movie, so I don't know how that worked, but, um, yeah, it seemed like Dream Movie was on the right path, and that they would have iterated... Um, and sort of iterated past that paradigm of a single page thing, they could have had something there. Yeah, and I know they probably had to to make a lot of difficult strategic decisions too about you know which way, which part of the market do they want to serve and continue to serve and all that. But that was actually the second time I got screwed by Adobe. Uh, since we're speaking of tools, <laughs> like because I had spent a ton of time and money taking classes, uh, learning the heck out of action script 2.0 man i was i was killing it with some action script i'm like yeah it makes all the sense in the world because you're just going to have like this flash runtime that runs on any machine anywhere you code once run anywhere this is brilliant like this is the future of the web <laughs> yep and steve jobs and the iphone killed that off really fast some of the design tools that we use are are sort of limiting and they still have some that same um you know, same limitations and same sort of paradigm that Photoshop had with a, you know, the single page metaphor, right? So mm -hmm. design tools that have artboards, right? They're mm -hmm. doing that exact same thing that you're talking about, where it's like you design this and then you design the next thing, you design the next thing, and then you have to sort of string them together to make any sense out of, you know, all the different states and how they go together. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas you have a, you know, a different tool such as Axure that, you know, allows you to do a page, but there's a lot of different things that you can do within that page to make it more dynamic and change small parts of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and it works more like sort of the web works, right? You, you, you still have a page, but each individual part of the page can have dynamic data and change and, and, and do that stuff. And whereas like if you're using sketch for that, it's a lot harder to, to, to do those dynamic things. And so um, that's why it's really interesting to, you know, that a lot of the design tools, like like an Envision, for example, is really embracing that model of, hey, here's a state and here's another state and maybe here's a, an interesting way to, uh, a very limited set of <laughs> ways to get between that one state and the other. Whereas like a tool like Axure really allows you to, you know, be very detailed about what that prototype is going to look like, but also has the, the, um, the drawback of, 
you end up going down deeper in a, into a rabbit hole of, mm-hmm. hey, we should we could have just had a developer make this at some point, right? <laughs> and, and knowing where that boundary is is sometimes really, really hard, especially if you're a designer and you just like get in a zone, you just like dig oh, really yeah. deep into it to make it do exactly what you want. And then you're just like, three days later, you come out of your days and you're like, oh man, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, Look what I made this extra prototype do. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> you've been in the extra hole. <laughs> but sometimes that's good because I've like, I've had a time where I did that and I went down that rabbit hole because I didn't have any technical, um, technical uh, resources to help me out. And it's the only way that I could come up with this thing that I, this vision I had in my head for this new way of doing something in our product. And eventually because I made that thing and, and was able to demonstrate the value of it and how it worked and why that doing this crazy animation was actually a good thing. Um, um, eventually got built and it's in the product today at a company I don't work at anymore. So, yeah, you know, sometimes, uh, it, it can really move things along having that, uh, that level of fidelity where you can actually see real data changing where you can see computations happening and that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, particularly on the enterprise side, um, sketch is just, you know, in my opinion, is brutal for that kind of work because, you know, you don't have that, uh, um, that, that dynamism that, uh, that you can get out of Axure where, you know, getting those panels to move and update and change um, really tells a story in terms of, you know, th- those handoffs. But all these other tools are, other than HTML, JavaScript, and CSS, Mm-hmm. Um, are really that still that page metaphor. It's really just a, an image. You're not mm-hmm. using real HTML as the, as the um, prototyping medium. Right. Um, and so it's very interesting to me that um, the, the, these, you know, these still design tools that are really popular are still images, page metaphor. Um, but that's not the things that we're designing anymore. We're not designing anything, things that are static, they're extremely dynamic and, um, it's becoming more and more important to be able to demonstrate those ideas so that you can say, Hey, this is how it's supposed to work. And this is, you know, this, this is actually what it'll look like. Not just here's this state, here's this state. And then yada, yada, yada is in between. Yeah. The fact that we still have to generate, um, those, those flow maps to show like, you know, okay, this screen can go to this screen or it could go to this one, depending on what happened. Like it just, it feels so archaic to have to do that. I mean, obviously, you do what's got to be done to you know to enable that handoff but it just it's brutal for me to, to get in there and try to you know uh, manually uh, detail that stuff and it just becomes a it becomes a, just a, a a maintenance nightmare that <laughs> okay you have you know these 10 screens that are mostly the same except for this one thing changes or this one thing changes or this one thing changes but then if you make a it's like, oh, but I need to make this change on the master page now. And it's just, it's, it just becomes really, really <laughs> difficult to, to manage. And even in an actor, it's hard to manage, right? Because you like, it you is. end up like yeah. having these dynamic panels that have like, you know, 15 different states with <laughs> logic and stuff on them for you click on this thing or you add this number and then, oh, it can, so it can, I mean, that's just as bad. Right. Right. <laughs> I added a page variable. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if there's one thing I think we can agree on, the absolute worst tool is Jira. <laughs> oh man! Oh man! Oh man! I was just gonna put that out there. Again, one of those ubiquitous tools. Um, everybody uses it, um, and it's very it, it it's fascinating because 
it's so it's extremely good at some things mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. it's extremely good for managing small individual minute tasks right mm-hmm. like like i would say jira excels at story and 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 subtask and that's about it in my book yeah. because once you get into the epic world then nobody knows how big an epic supposed to be well no, to, arguably nobody knows how big a story should be either um <laughs> but but when you have all these like individual things like okay here's all the tasks that we have to do and here's every single you know thing about that the big picture is impossible to see in all of that yeah. Yeah. And that is the thing that is most interesting to me because, you know, as I look at how product teams, I would like product teams to work. I want that product team to be able to have visibility into the big picture at all times. So that exactly. they're not just, you know, working on subtask, you know, 573 and not having the big picture to make the decisions they have to make to do that task. Right. Um, cause everybody is making decisions about the product all the time and not everybody can be in the same room. You can't have that communication on every single tiny little decision that gets made. Mm-hmm. And so we have to empower each member of the team to be able to make those decisions. And in order for them to be empowered to make those decisions, they need the big picture and the big picture information and tools like Jira are really bad at that. Yeah. I mean, for the sake of clarity, I say that Jira is terrible, and it is by far the best such tool I've ever used, right? I've tried a lot of other ones. Uh, I've mentally blocked a lot of the names, but uh, was it like Rally and Version 1 and other stuff? And, you know, same thing. It's not that the tool is bad at what it was really intended to do. It's just that, you know, that kind of uh, task granularity is not really even the the same discipline as solving a a big problem that somebody cares a lot about right like that just in my mind's eye when i describe like that kind of a scenario the first thing that springs to mind is not little cards (laughs) that you can slide around from column to column right like right just i wouldn't deconstruct a, a story like that you know every single company every single team every single little team inside of companies that I've worked at all have a different way of using Jira. Right, <laughs> Even right. when it's, it's been tried to, you know, you, you've got this, you know, this it person that says, no, we have to keep all the Jira projects exactly the same. So everybody's doing things the same way and locking it down so that you can only have one <laughs> workflow and all this stuff. And you want to get a UX <laughs> workflow in there, uh, you know, Lord help you if you have to do that. Um, but at the same but at the same time, I, everybody still uses it differently. And so totally. the fact that nobody's actually really figured out how to make it work for them is, is, is fascinating. And it's a, it's a fascinating commentary on the tool itself. Right, right. I mean, so it's no secret that I'm a sucker for productivity systems and tools and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, I, I've messed with you know, getting things done and so on and so forth. I've pretty much tried all these, you know, fad productivity systems. And I find that the one thing that I always end up going back to is my notebook 
with pen and paper. Like when it all just kind of falls apart, I go back to a notebook, I write stuff down, I cross it off when I'm done with it. And it's because it's the only system that has that level of flexibility to where, you know, all the all the killer folders and tags that I set up this week, you know, a couple of months from now, they're just, they're not relevant. And, you know, a paper notebook, that's okay because it's just a new sheet of paper. But, man, when you set that stuff up in, in JIRA or whatever task, you know, management system that you're using, uh, even for, like, personal stuff, for me, <laughs> you know, I, I get it tuned up just right, spend a whole weekend geeking out on it, and within a couple of weeks, I'm just like, ah, uh, this this just isn't working for me anymore. Yeah, and that's, you know, obviously, you know, pen and paper for your own task list works really, really well until mm-hmm. you have to give visibility to a bunch of other people <laughs> right, <laughs> what you're right. doing. And then that's when things like Jericho come in. It's like, oh, well, we have to have visibility so everybody else can see what you're doing. Oh, man, we could do a whole show on to-do lists and task yeah. management. Oh, man, if we're not <laughs> careful, this this whole podcast turns into a productivity uh, show. You're, you're on things three? Yes. Yes, yeah. that's what I use. I did the same thing with uh, to-do but like I said, I went bananas making, you know, here's my family list and here's my career aspirations list. And I just went bananas with all that. And, you know, at the time it was very beneficial. It was helping me kind of get some clarity around how I needed to structure things. But as far as like using it on a daily basis to track tasks in and out, um, you know, that that persisted for, you know, a week or two. I think the reason I always end up back on uh, my my bullet journal uh, which, which is my kind of my core thing that I always end up back at is because not only is it is it a productivity um, system, but it also lets me play with um, stationary, uh, nice paper, nice notebooks, and nice pens, which is like my other kind of um, area of geekdom. <laughs> I've noticed that the tool that I'm using to take notes actually changes my note-taking behavior. Um, Mm -hmm. for example, I used to take notes in notebooks and I would write and I would fill them up. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm one of those people that I write notes just to make the connections in my head more stronger, um, as opposed to, I'm going to go back and look at every single thing that I wrote down at some point in the, in the future. And I, I sometimes do that, but that's probably like, I would say low as low as five or 10% of the things that I've actually written down. And so it's kind of a waste of paper to do that. And I just felt I just get like, I would have these notebooks just starting to pile up. It's like, do I throw them away? Do I keep them? What do I do with this? <laughs> um, and then I finally broke down and got an iPad pro with the pencil. And um, at first it was kind of weird writing on that, but once I got used to it and now I just like, sometimes I'll doodle for no reason while I'm in a meeting because I, that's a way for me to focus on the meeting. Honestly, when people mm-hmm, think, mm-hmm. Oh, you're, you're, you're just doodling or whatever. I actually, it, it helps me focus on what people are saying. Um, but I'll just take notes all the time now as I'm, you know, listening to somebody talk or, um, um, in a meeting or I'm just, you know, thinking about something, I'll just sketch something out really fast. And I don't limit myself to how much I'm, you know, drawing because you know, it's infinite and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how much I draw or how many things I write. If I never go back to it again, it doesn't really matter. I agree with that. I I think just my only other gripe on the iPad pro scenario, uh, as much as I love using it, 
it happened to me just today actually i was like i wanted to try to do some conceptual work and i'm like you know i'm just gonna i'm just gonna sketch i'm just gonna doodle and sketch and just kind of see what comes out here and i um you know I, I i grab my ipad and i pull it out and i pull out my pencil and i you know unlock it and then there's that moment where i go hmm should i use procreate or should i use concepts or maybe I should use paper because I'm going to present with paste, except I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to use paste because I don't have enough uh, decks left. To, you know, and next thing I know, I've just wasted like all this time trying to figure out like what app should I use? And so, again, I, I think I benefit from that, you know, that forced limitation of like notebook, paper, draw. If you need to turn it into something that gets shared, OK, you can. You can scan it and, and so on. But yeah, I just, I'm, I guess I'm just too easily distracted. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, I just settled on one thing that I sketch in and that is it. I, and I know it's like, it's super limited. It doesn't really have a lot of features or anything in that, but I'm just like, I've tried to go try another app for sketching and I end up like, oh, the thing that I do all the time is a different place. Not to relearn it. I'm just like, ah, that's stupid. And I just <laughs> go back to the other one and it works for me. Um, I'm no artist. <laughs> I'm no, like I said before, I'm no fine artist and my notes don't need to be fine art. And I just like, ask ah, it. <laughs> well, don't forget to like and subscribe to the show um you can subscribe in whatever app you use to listen to your podcasts and if you don't have one you prefer we recommend overcast because it's a killer app made by nice folks yeah do do stuff designers love do, 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 do. <laughs> that must mean it's time for stuff designers love stuff designers love they love their stuff. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, so speaking of tools, uh, this week I'm in love with the Actionable Futures Toolkit by uh, NordCap. What? What is that? <laughs> the Actionable Futures Toolkit is a practice-proven toolkit made to work for you in building and, and aligning a future for an organization, service, or product. Um, that's how they describe it. Bottom line is it's a, a, a packet of um, workshop um, toolkits, basically uh, like canvases, almost sort of like the uh, business model canvas or the lean canvas. Um, you know, canvases are all the rage these days. Um, they have a, a nice package of them uh, that seems like a really good set of um, workshop activities to help get alignment across an organization um, when you're working up uh, your next uh, your next big move. So um, check it out. It's available at futures.nordcap.fi because apparently they're uh, based out of Helsinki. Um, Nordcap, N-O-R-D-K-A-P-P dot F-I. Was that an ad read? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Do we get paid for that? Uh, no, but uh, this space is available. <laughs> <laughs> I think designers like other things that aren't just the stuff that they use every day at work. And like booze. 
like <laughs> like like whiskey um <laughs> but uh this designer right here this designer right here loves a good rock and roll show i'll tell you that um mm. i just went to a rock and roll show just a couple nights ago Who did um, you say? i saw the band ghost have you ever heard Ooh. of the band ghost uh only from conversations with you <laughs> ghost is interesting um they're not your typical shock rock band but they are sort of in that genre of shock rock band where they're trying to be all like devil worshipy and stuff but they're not it's just all shtick right um but it's it's fun shtick and the thing i like about these guys is like they they're very theatrical they they put on a big show they have character their lead singer has different characters that he's gone through over the the years you don't they're the the people in band the band aren't their normal you know clark kent selves they're you know, they have characters oh, okay. that they all play nice. in the band and the lead singer um, until, re- you know, actually until last year, nobody knew who he was, um, <laughs> but he was kind of revealed because they got into a lawsuit with some previous musicians in the band and their oh, names geez. came out in the lawsuit. <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, it's this guy. Uh, um, but um, but yeah, he's like done different characters over the years for each album. There was a different um pope he was he was like the pope emeritus one pope emeritus two and now he's doing this thing where he's cardinal copia and each one has a different he's a, it's a different character that he's played in for all these things and so really you know really great show um they played for three hours right wow. they started at eight o'clock they don't have an opening band started at eight o'clock had a 15 minute intermission and then you know and uh ended right 11 o'clock so it was like really long and it's like like for value for the money because you know i don't know if you've been to a a a concert lately no concerts are expensive yeah the first concert i went to the first concert i went to this is going to date me 1987 uh it was uh def leopard and tesla (laughs) at the (laughs) fort wayne memorial coliseum in fort wayne indiana (laughs) those tickets were 1750 nice and I don't. That was before the days of Ticketmaster, um, Highway Robbery, oh, where gosh. they you know charge you an extra fifteen dollars. I mean the <laughs> the Ticketmaster fees are more than the the tickets were when I went when I went to my right, show. Right. So value for the money, you know, got a three hour show. That's pretty good. Um, but yeah, um, if you like interesting heavy metal shock rock music, um, they're they're a good band to, to check out ghost stuff designers love and that's the stuff designers love hey don't forget to tweet us i'm at stuperman and larry is at la king that's without the s no there's a s s-t-u-p-o-r-m-a-n no but there's no s at the end of la king oh oh just the one singular (laughs) la king yes Awkward pause, awkward pause. Uh, Let's wrap this up. Sniffy says no.